Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. Pastor Brandon a couple of weeks ago, uh, was, was preaching on Mark chapter 12, and uh, he was talking about how difficult that, uh, that passage was, because it's about money, right? Nobody likes to talk about money in the church. Um, so I'm, I'm going to borrow from his sermon last, or a couple of weeks ago, uh, and be highly transparent here this morning. Mark 13 is much, much harder than the sermon that he pre- <laughs> preached a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he agrees, yeah, uh, 100%. Um, why is it hard? Why is Mark chapter 13 hard? That's where we're going to be at today, by the way, if you want to start flipping there. Right at the beginning of the chapter through verse 13 is where we'll be. Um, And honestly, I would love to say that this passage is hard because it's all about money again. I would love to say that, but it's not. This passage is not about money again. It's not about giving to the church. And it's actually far less uncomfortable for me than, uh, than the next several passages. The next three weeks in Mark chapter 13 uh, are going to be very uncomfortable weeks for me uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a Christian, um, because uh, it's about eschatology. Uh, eschatology is the study of last things. It's the idea of you know, the second coming. It's where, you know, where, what happens after we die. It's all those things, right? It's last things. Last things are hard. Uh, Last things are hard because uh, in these apocalyptic prophecies, there's often poetic language and you have to deal with poetry. I like literal language, guys. Like I'm a very logical person. Sometimes the poetic stuff gets me a little confused at times. Um, Also, prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. We find this in the Old Testament often, that there was an immediate fulfillment and then there was a final fulfillment, right? Often the times the, the timelines are unclear in these passages. Uh, sometimes they can be cyclical. So you, you, know, you can't le- read it linearly. You have to read these passages in cycles where it's greater and greater deg- degrees of explanation through a passage. Um, often we're, we're forced to sort of speculate about the, the future in these passages. And I don't like preaching speculatively. Um, and, and all of that leads to a, uh, a multitude of views on eschatology. There's like three main views, but then there's all sorts of subsets of views. I won't get into all of those today because this isn't going to be a technical sermon on the end times. Um, Mark 13, though, is, uh, is an interesting one because you'd think that like Revelation is a highly disputed book. As far as like between Christians, we go like, well, what's going on here? How does this work? What are the timelines? How do we understand it? There's a lot of unknowns as far as the speculative nature of that. But I think that Mark 13 is actually harder than Revelation. Um, I've seen far more people disputing uh, in commentaries about like the, the finer points of Mark 13 than I have uh, about Revelation. Revelation is, there's really just those three main views and you can kind of talk through it and you can work through it. But Mark 13 is all over the place. Um, if that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you, okay? Uh, it, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable too because I, I like to think that uh, 
we can kind of stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Like we can look back at different people and see their different opinions of these passages and try to ascertain what's going on uh, through those passages. But the reality is that there are a multitude of views on these things. I heard someone, someone say recently that you cannot take others where you have not gone uh, yourself. And uh, this is good advice, but I think sometimes pastors feel pressured to take people where no one has ever been meant to go, right? They look at these passages and they go, okay, like this is what's happening. Here's how it applies to current day. And they say, like, there's all sorts of speculation that happens in those things. They feel that pressure. And to be honest with you, I think it's a good thing to, to consider our current situation in light of what Jesus has said about the end times, Okay. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think there's this pressure that pastors feel and maybe that you feel when you're asked about eschatological things uh, to try to speculate about current events. Um, I, I feel that way every time I approach a passage like this. People ask me about the end times and they want, to, they want somebody that's really like a fortune teller, right? They want somebody to look at the text and go, okay, like here is, uh, like I've just found uh, you know, Joe Biden in, in the scriptures, uh, you, whether he's mentioned positively or negatively, you decide. Uh, you probably know how I feel if you know me. Um, but like, you know, you can go through this and, and go, okay, I've, I found this historical person. I found this current times person, but I, I'm trepidatious about being wrong when preaching the word of God. If we're having an interior discussion about these things and we want to have, you know, just casual discussion, or we want to be really focused on like, hey, what's going on here? And we want to have a Bible study about it, whatever else. We could do stuff like that there. But preaching the word of God authoritatively from the pulpit is a different thing to me. And so uh, I, I'm reminded of James 3.1, which uh, warns us that not many of us should desire to be teachers, for as such, teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And so I think about these things and I go, okay, maybe I just need to preach what the word of God says. And do my best to not speculate, but to just give you what God has said. Because here at Mosaic Church, we absolutely believe that the word of God is sufficient for all of faith and life. God's word gives us all that we need. He has given us everything in here that we need to know about the end times. And so I want to try to give you what God has given us and try to expound upon that a bit. And so I'm called to interpret the scriptures rightly, and I hope to do that today. Even with, if it's without a map of the end times, you've seen these, the timelines and things like that. I don't have one of those. Even if it's without specific dates or modern people and places, whatever else you might attempt to find on the internet. Uh, to be honest, like, I think that there is some great work that has been done out there trying to figure some of this stuff out. And people have glorified God in attempting to figure these things out. But I think that we've seen over the course of at least my lifetime, most people have been wrong. And so I want to err on the side of caution here as I preach. Um, I believe that, that the second part of Daniel, the Olivet Discourse, which is where we're at in Mark chapter 13, and uh, it's parallel in Matthew 24, uh, Revelation and elsewhere, all give us what we need to know about the end times and that these passages are clear where they need to be clear. And so we get the idea of uh, warnings and things like that. We should keep our eyes open. Jesus says constantly, be on guard. Keep your eyes open. He doesn't say stick your head in the sand and ignore these things. He says, keep your eyes open. Be aware. 
But where the scriptures are not clear, we should seek to understand, engage in loving discussion and logical argument, but ultimately place our faith in the God who orchestrates all things for good, whose love endures forever, and who is always faithful to his people. You see where I'm at? So ultimately, like, rather than predicting things and saying this is what's going to happen, maybe we're called to simply trust God and keep our eyes open. I'm hoping that I can get to that today. Uh, and before we begin even more, I, I, I just want to lay all of my cards on the table and tell you what my perspective is on this particular passage. Pastor Brandon and I were actually just talking about this, and I, we haven't had a chance to hook up this week to, to talk about what's going on in the passage, but... Uh, because uh, he's been on vacation, so um, we just had a quick conversation earlier. I told him beforehand, if he doesn't agree with my personal eschatological position and my interpretation of this passage, I encouraged him to preach his, inter- his understanding of this passage if he stands up to preach one of these uh, passages in the next couple of weeks, because I want to show all of you that we can be united around the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be divided by views of eschatology. Now, there are some views of eschatology that are problematic. We won't get into those today, but, uh, but we'll, you know, I think generally speaking, we need not be divided on these things. And so to lay my cards on the table, uh, I am becoming more and more convinced that Mark chapter 13 and the parallel passage in Matthew 24 and 25 are divided into two periods of time. That's the period of time before, after Jesus' ascension uh, through to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then the period after the destruction of the temple until his second coming. So it's linear, one piece and then another, okay? Some people believe that this is a double fulfillment prophecy. Some people believe this is only about the last times. I, I think the first period, that, that period between Jesus' ascension and the destruction of the temple is covered in verses 3 through 23-ish. And then the second part is covered in verses 24 through 37, uh, if you're going to look forward and uh, and start maybe doing your own study on eschatology through Mark chapter 13 this week. Uh, I want to, again, clearly note that if you disagree with me in this interpretation, I think that we can still work together through this. I think we can still see the gospel in it. We can still find hope in it, Okay. Uh, and so I want to work through this together. And let me make this like absolutely, just absolutely explicit, okay? Uh, if you disagree with me here, I am asking for your grace. It's okay. You can tell me how wrong I am after the sermon. But I think, I hope, that we will see the God who is sovereign over all of history through this passage, all of us together regardless of the perspective we take, regardless of the interpretational loopholes we try to create, whatever else to try to figure out how this works, okay? I think we can do this together. And so today, we're going to do Mark chapter 13, verses verses 1 through 13. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this passage of Scripture. That is some rain. It it says that it rains on both the just and the unjust. I guess it's raining on the just today. (laughs) All right. Mark chapter 13 says, And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. 
And when Je- and Jesus said to, uh, began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents to have them put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I pray that this morning you would help us to understand what you have placed in your word for our good concerning not only the time leading up to the destruction of the temple, but of our own time and the time beyond this. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us hope this morning in spite of all tribulation, that, Lord God, we would see how wonderfully perfect you are in your sovereignty. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the hope that we need to endure to the end, that, Lord, we might be saved according to your gracious will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. That is a lot of rain, guys. It felt epic, though, reading the scriptures with the thunders. Am I allowed to say that? I guess I did now. It's on the podcast. What do you do? It's there in perpetuity. The more I've thought about Mark chapter 13 and eschatological topics in general, the more that I think we sometimes miss the point. Um, While seeking to understand these difficult passages is great, we shouldn't lose sight of the bigger picture. Through prophecy, God is providing, or proving his faithfulness to his people. He's showing them that he's not surprised by the suffering that they experience and that he is faithful and trustworthy to see them through all of it. As we begin considering this prophecy of Jesus, let's keep in mind what he says at the end of the chapter in Mark 13, uh, verses 35 through 37. It says, Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. It's a grace to us that God has said, hey, these things are about to happen. He's proving his faithfulness that when they do come to pass, we can say, wow, look how faithful God is that he told us beforehand that this would happen. We should be watchful for signs. We should dig deep into the scriptures, but we should remain steadfast in the faith more than anything, not wavering. Because if you find that you've become sleepy, these passages will wake you up, won't they? The eminence of Christ's return, the uncertainty of whether it happens now, 
didn't happen. Or not. He says no man knows the time or the hour, so I'm guessing he's not going to come when I say now. But anyway. But whether that will happen in that moment or not should drive you to be awake, to keep your eyes open. And so we should not be sleepy looking for signs. We should be aware of what's going on in the world, but we also, and even more, should not be sleepy in the faith. If you have grown cold in your faith in Jesus Christ, this passage says, wake up, it's time. And so with that in mind, I want us to take a look at this passage where Jesus describes the persecution of Christians leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, but even applies to this day, okay? I think he is very specifically answering the question that Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were asking him here. I really do. I think he was asking that question beforehand. Or he was answering that question beforehand. But there is much, much we can learn on how the people of God should respond to trials and tribulations. Let's look at verse 1. It says, and he, as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. It's just a, a passing comment, right? I love it, though, because it's, uh, the, there are some uh, t- commentators that have drawn out that perhaps the disciples were trying to uh, like soothe the sort of uh, angst that might have been felt in the situation because Jesus had just sort of trounced everybody at their own game, right? Like he had, he had come at them pretty hard, right? And they were like, Oh, look, look at the wonderful buildings. (laughs) You know, uh, Jesus, it's okay. Uh, It's going to be fine. Uh, Some other people have said, hey, uh, uh, the the disciples were trying to show him that an earthly kingdom was within his grasp. The disciples are actually trying to say, hey, look, you don't need to die. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to make all these enemies. You could just take this. You could just have it. I think that's very possible that they were trying to say, hey, like, this, is, this could be yours. Interestingly, this parallels with what Satan did for, with Jesus in the, gar- in, the, uh, in the wilderness. But, as always, we're, we're not sure exactly what the intention here was, but uh, we do know that Jesus was not interested in an earthly kingdom. And if his disciples were trying to put a more positive spin on things, that really wasn't working either. Look at verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Ooh. Look at these wonderful buildings, Jesus. You could just have a kingdom here. And he's like, it's all going away. It's all going to be on the ground. Not one stone upon another. This is quite the judgment. You might think, well, like a building, it's just a building. Like, we don't, we don't weep over buildings being torn down. I mean, you, you might if you're sentimental, but like, you, you, you typically, it's just a building. But the temple of God was a symbol, right? It meant something. It was the presence of God to his people. And Jesus said, this is going away. Not one stone will lay on top of another. How do I know that this is a judgment? First Kings 6, or sorry, First Kings 9, 6 through 9. Uh, God kind of lays out the price of living in disobedience. He's talking to Solomon. He says, 
But if you turn aside from me, or you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statutes that have, statutes that I have set before you, uh, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I give them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword amongst the people. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold to other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought them, brought all this disaster upon them. And then in 2 Kings 25, 9, the promise was kept. It says, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. God made good on his promise. His people turned away. He sent Nebuchadnezzar to go and burn the place to the ground. After this, the, uh, the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Uh, great name, fun name to say. If one of you guys names your kid Zerubbabel, I will pay you. All right, no more jokes. And uh, this new temple was finished around 515 BC. Um, you can see Ezra 16 or 6, 5, 615 if you uh, if you're interested. Um, around that time when Jesus was in earthly in his earthly ministry, Herod then had begun remodeling the temple that had been existing for quite some time and did so pretty uh, substantially, uh, overhauling it. In fact, uh, it changed so much that it became known as Herod's temple rather than simply the second temple. Uh, and the renovations were, were probably still underway when uh, Jesus and his disciples were walking past the temple. Uh, the, the renovations, uh, from what I can gather, uh, weren't completed until about 65-ish uh, AD. So um, they, they would have seen like all the, like I don't know if they used scaffolding and things like that back then, but like they would have seen all the construction going on. And they were still awed by what was happening, right? They were like, this is an amazing building. Look at this. But Jesus judged it instead. And so rather than admiring those beautiful stones, he prophesied the destruction of the second temple. And this could be understood as nothing less than a clear judgment against Israel. And it clearly concerned the disciples because in verse three, Jesus begins what is known as the Olivet Discourse in response to the question of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Let's look at that real quick. Verses 3 and 4 of Mark chapter 13 say, And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, uh, sorry, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will, the sign, or what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? I mean, it's only reasonable, isn't it? Jesus says, this place is going away. No stone on top of another. That's a big deal. These people are going to be judged, he says. I'm like, whoa. This sounds like a catastrophic event. Like, this is scary stuff. You're telling us that this is going to happen. Certainly telling us that this is going to happen when. I mean, I, we all want to know this about the end times, don't we? When is it going to happen? We want to make some plans, right? I want to go back to Hawaii before that happens right? Like, whatever it is, right? I, like, I want to experience this in my life, 
right? We want to have this, this plan in mind. And they, I think they had that same kind of thing in their head. But before we get to Jesus' response to their question, I want to reiterate that this passage is difficult because it's really unclear as to which parts of this uh, are concerning events that are still in the future for us versus uh, events that happened before or around 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And the temple was destroyed, by the way. I kind of glossed over that a little bit. In 70 AD, the Roman army came in and tried to put down the, the Jewish insurrection that was happening in Israel at the time. And, uh, and they, they won. Uh, they burned the whole city. Uh, there was not a stone left upon another uh, in the temple. Uh, in fact, the fire burned so hot, they say that uh, the, uh, the, the, the gold and silver ornamentation melted between the stones and you couldn't even pick them up. Like, it's just there. Crazy stuff. So Jesus prophesies this end of the temple. Before we get to there, to there I w again want to say that some people believe this is a double fulfillment as there were with many Old Testament prophecies. And if that's your position here, I, I think we'll be in good company still. Because I believe in Mark 5 uh, through 13, sorry, Mark 13, 5 through 13, that Jesus is directly responding to the question of these four disciples. I really do. I, I think some people read this very futurist, right? And they, they read it almost exclusively futurist. But I really think that Jesus was trying to be a good teacher. He was answering their question. It's very straightforward, I think, in this first part, he's saying, hey, this is what's about to happen. But even if you think that these particular uh, verses are going to be fulfilled in the, the future, or maybe you even think that they're completely fulfilled in the past, that's another position that you can take of this particular part of the passage. If that's your position, I think we can still learn a lot from what Jesus has to say about how his people should suffer well through tribulation. In light of that, I think we all can be helped by Jesus' words here. He warns us then against false Christs, which we have more than enough of today. He comforts us in the face of fear. It's an amazing thing. And he gives us hope to persevere through every tribulation. Verses 5 and 6 say, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. There are all kinds of false Christs in this world, aren't there? All kinds of people who set themselves up as saviors of humanity, but who have little power to accomplish anything truly good. Lots of different kinds of false Christs in this world. I think we've even seen the democratization of false Christs. Like, it's groups of people now. It's society as a whole that will save itself, right? You see where I'm at? But there, there's a specific kind of false Christ that Jesus is talking about here, and that's the kind that says that he, that person is Jesus himself. This is the person that, says, that comes in his name and says, I am he, right? I think that we live in such a skeptical age now, though, that most of us here would never follow someone just claiming to be Jesus. Like, when the guy comes up to you on the road and says, hi, I'm Jesus, like, we're so skeptical these days that the answer is like probably, like, no, I don't think so. I don't think you're Jesus. But think about this from the perspective of the disciples. Think about that. They had been told that Jesus would come again. They understood that. But man, like, what would that look like? He hadn't been very clear up to this point about what that might look like. They didn't know 
whether they might find Jesus laboring away in the local carpentry shop. They didn't know if perhaps they would find him ruling over some foreign land. They didn't know if maybe uh, he, was, he was going to come in one way or another, but so they needed to know the way to tell a counterfeit Christ from the real one. But we can't just look at the disciples and go, well, okay, obviously they're the only ones that would be susceptible to this sort of thing. We are too. We are too. Because if someone came to you and said, I am Jesus Christ, they said those words to you. And then they made the blind see. They made the deaf hear. They made the lame walk and more. Would you believe them then? Would you believe them? Be honest. Some of you are thinking in your heads, yeah, I might actually believe that. And I get it. I understand. And I'm not just talking about uh, YouTube videos here. It's easy enough to fake that stuff. We know that, right? But if you saw this in person, the sick are healed in front of your eyes. How can we then tell a counterfeit Christ from the real one? Because Jesus says that in verse 22 of, of, this, uh, of this chapter, that false Christs will do signs and wonders. Remember that Pharaoh's magicians did signs and wonders too. Good people aren't the only ones that can do miracles. That's where we're at. Jesus says that false Christs will lead many astray. Their teaching will tell you what you want to hear, and their miracles will seemingly validate their ministry. But you should not be deceived. He says in, these, uh, in this passage, see that no one leads you astray. And so we must know God's word, or we will be deceived and led astray. So if miracles aren't the differentiating factor, how can we tell us counterfeit Christ from a real one? Well, if you don't know the Jesus of the Bible, you can't. You can't. You will never know who it is that's telling you he is the Christ unless you know the Jesus of the Bible. But if you know the Jesus of the Bible, you know that when he comes again, you won't need him to tell you who he is. In his first incarnation, Jesus came in meekness and in the form of a servant. But when he comes again, he will come in power and glory. There will be a, a trumpet sound, right? Like We're going to know. There's not going to be a question in your mind. Do not be deceived, for many will come in his name and do signs and wonders, but he will come in power and glory. But he says before then, there will be trouble. Verses 7 and 8 say, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I've heard it said many times that wars and rumors of wars are the, a signal of the end times, but that's not actually what Jesus said, is it? It says... And when you hear of these things, wars and rumors of war, do not be don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. It's okay. It's going to be fine. It's okay. It's not good, but it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. These conflicts and natural disasters are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
Under the, understanding this in the direct context of the destruction of the temple, this was a comfort to the disciples. He said that they may hear of all these things, but the judgment promised in the destruction of the temple would not come until after that had happened. And so they could see beforehand this was happening. This was, okay, like we're, we're working along Jesus' timeline. We see that it is happening. And then when it finally happened, they were already prepared. Jesus made this prophecy to give comfort to his disciples. They were about to go through a season of incredible turmoil in this point in time. And likewise, at any moment, we may too find ourselves in the midst of a period of great tribulation, can't we? This happens all around the world. It happens in our personal lives. It happens to, to a, I would argue, often a greater degree to people in all sorts of different places in this world where they are persecuted openly for their faith. At any point in time, we can go through these same types of tribulations. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I want to give you comfort. Do not be alarmed, he says. Do not be disturbed when you hear of all these things that are coming. Don't worry. Despite wars and earthquakes and famines, the people of God should not be disturbed. Why? Because God is good and he will see us through every single circumstance. Every single circumstance. We need not be disturbed. And I want to be clear. The biblical way to live the Christian life is vigilant, it is watchful, and it is courageous. We should not pretend that evil and, and disaster do not exist, nor should we live in fear that evil or disaster may be coming for us. We need not live in fear, but we should not just stick our heads in the sand and pretend that none of this stuff is happening. There's a way in which we can live both vigilantly, watchfully, and confidently and courageously. Our peace, then, is not found in our circumstances, but in the God who is sovereign over all things that come to pass. Look, we won't have it easy all the time. And if you're a truly faithful Christian and you find yourself right now living a relatively easy life, then count it as a gift of grace and do not take it for granted. Jesus reminds us elsewhere, though, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So be watchful. See what's going on in this world. When you see all the bad stuff happening in politics and in the government and in corporations and all sorts of terrible stuff, when you see that, don't stick your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. But likewise, live courageously in the face of what would be fear because your God is sovereign. So be watchful, just as Jesus commands in these following verses, but also do not be disturbed. Tribulation will come, but the people of God need not fear. Let's go to verses 9 through 11 here. It says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
The phrase be on your guard means watch out or take heed in the old King James. As Christians, we must be watchful and not anxious. Personally, I think there are two extremes we can have to these, uh, to, to these things. That One of those is, uh, like I said a minute ago, uh, we must not place our heads in the sand just pretending like nothing is happening. And on the other side, we must not become morbidly fascinated by the things of this world so much that we become anxious or worse. Maybe we lose sight of Christ because we're so focused on world events. Let's not go there. There is a Christian way to live, and that is not it. Jesus wanted his disciples to be watchful because it is far better to see trouble coming than for it to catch you unaware. There's a grace to them. Hey, this is coming, but it's going to be okay. You're going to make it through it. No, this stuff isn't good, but you're going to make it through the bad stuff. It's far easier to deal with that when you know it's coming. As a kid, it's funny, my mom's here today. I hated, hated going car shopping with my parents. It's only happened once or twice, I think, when I was a kid, but man, it was awful. I seriously can't imagine like a worse thing as a kid. Like I had a really good, good childhood, okay, like admittedly. But like that was, that was a terrible, terrible thing for me because we'd go to one dealership, we'd sit in a few cars, drive one or two, and then go on to the next lot. And it seemed like it would never end. And there was no rhyme or reason to anything, right? Like you just kind of, like you're getting dragged along, you're sitting in all these new cars, you're getting a little sick because you're sitting in the back seat and everybody's driving. Right? Nobody's going to let you sit in the front seat because, you know, you're the little one. Chuck you in the back. Right? Get a little sick to my stomach, and I'm like, when is this going to be over? Come on. Like, just nothing, right? No rhyme or reason, like, oh, it's a red one. Oh, it's a blue one. I thought we wanted purple ones. I don't know. Like, what's going on? From my perspective, there was just nothing there. I had no way to predict what might happen. And it seemed incredibly insane to me that my parents, reasonable human beings that they are, would just pop around any given car lot, look at a bunch of cars, and then pop over to the next one that they happened to see. Look, I, I recognize that, uh, that I am not completely normal when it comes to needing to know like, and be able to predict what happens next. Some of you are a bit more kind of roll with the punches people. I am not. I am not. Most people, in fact, are more spontaneous than I am. My wife can affirm that, yes. But I can't help but feel if they had just told me that there was a plan, five car lots, three makes of car, two colors, and a certain set of features that we were looking for, that I would have been able to prepare myself for the tribulation, grit my teeth, bear it, right? But that's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. He's saying, this is going to come to pass and it's going to be okay. Like there is an end. There's something that, that has to come to pass, but you're going to make it through this. He was telling them beforehand that this would happen so that they wouldn't be afraid and so that they would depend on God for help. And the circumstances in verse nine, interestingly, happened precisely as Jesus said to many Christians in the first century. In fact, Paul himself was explicitly beaten with rods, brought before governors and kings, and bore witness to Christ before them. 
This is a clear prophecy in my mind. This is a clear prophecy about the situation before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. But it is also clearly a help to us here and now in our present circumstances. But because uh, it's interesting that, that Paul went through all of this explicitly in the scriptures, uh, because we also see that because of Paul's ministry and the ministry of others, the gospel was proclaimed in some sense to the whole Roman world before 70 AD. Let's look at, at, at verse 10. You might be latching onto this and going, but Greg, they didn't know all the nations then. We'll get there. Uh, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, he says. I understand this in light of all nations of the Roman Empire. This is the way this is used several times throughout the New Testament. And I think Jesus is going like, all of the nations that you know, they're going to have the gospel proclaimed to, to them, and they were. They were proclaimed to throughout the, the known world then and there. But there's a sense in which this continues. It's strange and wonderful that the, the church actually thrives in times of adversity. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that despite the world's best efforts in ending them, the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the whole world and that it would happen rapidly. He's saying before all of this happens, before the, the fall of the temple, the, the whole world of which you are aware will have the gospel proclaimed to it. It may not be every single person everywhere, but it is to all the nations of the Roman Empire. That's how I understand that passage, and it is true. You look and see where people went on missionary journeys and where the gospel was preached throughout that time. It's the whole known world. The whole known world knew the gospel then, but the gospel continues to go forth. And this gospel proclamation continues in the face of persecution to this day. And I think that maybe our, our freedom and affluence here and now in this country make us less apt to share the gospel at times. Sometimes we, we're timid because of our social status, right? We have a certain group of friends, we have a certain job, we have certain things that we, that we want and desire to, to continue to have. And I, I think that we could do a better job of this. We could do a better job of considering ourselves lucky to be able to, blessed to be able to, proclaim the gospel to people. But I'll be honest, I think, I think psychologically, when you're persecuted as a Christian, not only psychologically, but spiritually, but both, that psychologically it is easier when you have nothing left to lose to preach the gospel. And I think that God blesses his people as they are persecuted to keep them. It's both. Maybe God working through psychology. I don't know. Look, I'm not a psychologist. But it may be that we experience such a shift in our lifetimes, a, a shift wherein we as Christians become hated by all more openly. I think we see this shift happening throughout society. I'm not trying to be a fear monger. I'm really not but I think there's a possibility that within our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes that Christianity is hated like it was hated in the first century. It's possible. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not making a prophecy here. I'm saying it could happen and we should be prepared. We should be prepared to preach the gospel in all circumstances. And we should expect 
that God's sovereign will and salvation will go forward even despite persecution, perhaps even more so during persecution. What a wonderful God we serve, that he would work even in those worst of circumstances. But Jesus doesn't just give us the foresight we need to grit our teeth and bear these trials. He doesn't just give us the, the, the promise that the gospel will go forth. In verse 11, he says this, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. When I talk to people who are anxious about tribulations and persecution, I often remind them of this core truth. God always provides what is necessary for his people in their time of need. Always, always, always. I mean that word always. No, it is not always the way you want it. But God does provide. According to extra biblical um, historical sources, it is said that Paul stood before Caesar, made his case, and was freed to preach the gospel. Then, in the years just before the destruction of the temple, Christians were heavily persecuted throughout the Roman Empire, especially in Rome, uh, where the, the emperor Nero had blamed Christians for the fire in Rome that had destroyed much of the city. So they were heavily persecuted. And during this time, it is said that Paul went again to Rome, and this time he was martyred. In fact, uh, some have said that, that he and Peter may have been martyred at the same time. What an incredible situation I can't imagine. But because of what Jesus says here, I wholeheartedly believe that God gave Paul the precise words to say both times, not just the first time. And I believe that he gave Paul the steadfastness in the faith that he needed to endure even unto death. It was heavy stuff, I know. God always provides what is necessary to his people, even if it's unto death. Look at Stephen as he was stoned preaching. Trust the God who is sovereign over all things. Trust the God who loves you. Trust the God who promises all of these things to you. You worry that you might not make it if you go through the difficulties and the tribulations that, that may happen to you. You worry that if you were faced with dying at the stake that you may not remain in the faith. You might repudiate Christ. Trust the God who gives grace to those who need it. Trust him. Honestly, I, I think that part, that idea of being given strength in the faith of death, death is somewhat, sometimes easier, though, than being given the words to say when confronted with a difficult circumstance. Sometimes it's easier to go, yeah, like I'll just trust in God in that moment, kind of hoping it never happens. It's easy to say that, but sometimes it's harder to execute when you're working through a conversation with someone and you feel like you don't know what to say or you're, you're maybe hesitant to, hesitant to even strike up a conversation with someone because you're afraid that it's going to hurt your social status with them. It's going to hurt your friendship, hurt your relationship, hurt your job. If you've ever been nervous about sharing your faith or, taking, or talking about uh, deep things with people, because you were certain that they would come up with some crazy philosophical question that you couldn't answer. 
or you come up with some other excuse why you can't talk to this person that you love about the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe you should put more stock in the God who provides the words to say when they need to be said. I can tell you from personal experience that this is true. I am just by myself, not a very good counselor of people, just by myself. If in theory, I was thinking about counseling situations, if you interviewed me like that, like talk me through a particular counseling situation, like I would probably do badly. But I have found that in every circumstance where I have done marriage counseling or I've done personal counseling for people who are struggling with sin and whatever else, that in those moments, God brings to mind the things that are necessary. And those times when I don't trust him to do that are the times where I mess things up. I mean, even thinking about last week, some of you were here. I preached a, an extemporaneous sermon. Uh, like, you know, I can show you my notes. It's about five lines on Romans 8, 1 through uh, 12, I think it was. Um, I believe that all the more today after that sermon. I do not believe I could have given that sermon on any other occasion or done it again the same way, but I believe that someone here needed to hear it, even if it was just me. It's not bad to be studied, prepared, to present a reason for your faith. In fact, that's biblical. But you don't need to be anxious. Step forward. Step out in faith. Trust the Holy Spirit, and he can speak through you. Just trust him. In times of tribulation, God will give you the words to speak, and he will provide all that is necessary, but that doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. Again, Verses 12 through 13. Let's get through some more of the bad here. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. In the first part of the 13th verse here, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Like I said, the, this period of tribulation leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is these evil things. Uh, even the, the destruction of the nuclear family here as we see it, Right? They did happen. But again, Jesus was warning the disciples about a particular period leading up to the destruction of the temple. But I have to admit that I see these same patterns today. I see the same stuff going on. and I believe I am going to see it more and more and more as time progresses unless God intervenes. I would love to see a revival in this world. Like a, a, great, a great awakening better than the second one. <laughs> Maybe about the, like the first one, hopefully. I would love to see that. But the way that things are going and the, the, what I want to prepare you for, yeah, this, this stuff could happen. Again, and maybe even in our lifetimes. We see it constantly throughout other countries in this world, people turning one another in to the authorities because they're Christians. Some of you may even find yourselves hated even now by family members who don't know Christ. Maybe you have that fracturing happening within your own family. People around the world experience this. I don't see why we would be any different. And I think we do see this. We see families torn apart because some believe in Christ and then some don't. And they're persecution between the two. They might not be delivering one another up to authorities, but they're cutting one another off. There's no love there. 
if you don't feel directly attacked or hated by the broader culture because of what you believe as a Christian, what you believe about salvation, that there's one way. We believe this. All of us here believe that there is one way for salvation. We believe that there is there's only uh, one kind of marriage, right? It is heterosexual monogamous. We believe that children should be raised by their parents. We believe that life begins in the womb. Our world doesn't believe this. If you don't feel hated to a degree by at least the news media, then you've got your head in the sand again. But the world has never been for you. As soon as you claim Christ, the world is going to find reasons to despise you. But look with me at this last sentence of our passage this morning. I want to give you some hope. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the hope. Jesus promises salvation to those who persevere. This one sentence, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, provides the hope that this passage so badly needs. And I do believe that he is talking about salvation as in eternal salvation, not just saved out of the tribulation. He's saying the one who endures to the end, that is either to the second coming or to death will be saved. Yes, then there are commands to be watchful here. Yes, there is comfort here. No, we do not need to be anxious. And yes, this one sentence even commands us to endure. It reminds us to endure. All those years ago, if my parents had, uh, had told me that when we were going to go car shopping uh, and that we, they were going to look at five different cars in three different colors or whatever else, right? If they had told me that and then they told me at the end of the whole ordeal that there were going to be vanilla cream-filled donuts. Help me. Then I might have endured that minor tribulation more gracefully. God's promising something here. He's promising something here. He says, at the end of all of these things, at the, all the end of all the difficulties, at the end of your tribulation, at the end of the pain, the sadness, the tearing that happens in your heart, when all of these things are done, if you persevere, if you endure to the end, then there is salvation forevermore. He says, it's going to be okay. And there's this thing at the end, you just got to power through, you got to run the race. Jesus reminds us what the, what's on the other side of the difficulties of life. There's heaven, there's eternal life, and then new heavens and new earth. But maybe this causes a bit more anxiety than it, than it soothes, huh? Because then you ask the question, well, what if I don't endure? What if I don't make it? What if it's all too much? What if I cave to the pressure? Well, the implied command to endure is met with an even better promise. I want to read John 10. 27 through 30, it tells us something very clear about Jesus' relationship with his sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is actually one of the phrases that got Jesus crucified. Can't claim oneness with God the Father and be a person is what they thought. Be a human being. This is not okay. But it's true. How do we deal with this? Well, we call it the doctrine of perseverance. Yes, endure. Yes, run the race. Fight the fight of faith. These encouragements in scripture are there for your good. They are a means of grace to you to help you to persevere in every circumstance. And these encouragements in scripture are there for your good. They're a means of grace, right? So when you hold on though, when you endure, when you finish the race, when you win the fight, it has been God who caused you to persevere. Maybe you thought you were holding on to him. Maybe in your meager strength you were. But the reality is more than that. He is holding on to you. He's holding on to you. I've said it before and I meant it. God always provides for his people. In that moment when you need to endure the most incredible hardships known to man, you need not be anxious because God is faithful. Not because you are strong enough, but because he is reminded where he says that, where Paul says that where I am weak, he is strong. Whether he removes you from your trial or sees you through it, or even gives you the strength to die for the sake of Christ, he is always faithful. He is always trustworthy. And so as Jesus foretold these tribulations leading up to the destruction of the temple and even into the church age, our time, through the second coming, he was trying to accomplish a few things. I'm going to end with this. First, he was trying to prepare his disciples for hardship. He wanted them to see it coming. Second, he was trying to show them that there was and still is a plan for all of this. They could trust him. Third, he was proving himself trustworthy. They wouldn't see the fulfillment of this prophecy of the destruction of the temple for decades. But when they did, and when Christians who read the the, uh, gospel of Mark did, I am certain that their faith was increased. Jesus said, hey, you can trust me. This is going to come to pass. And when it came to pass, everybody was like, huh, he said that was going to happen. Not only did he rise from the grave, not only did he promised to come in glory and power. He did all these amazing other things too. And it's, it's, it's crazy to me. I, I love it that the destruction of the temple is this verifiable, undisputed historical fact that happened decades after Jesus prophesied that it would happen and decades after it, the, the book of Mark would have been written. Like you can't deny that Jesus said this was going to happen and then it happened and it happened precisely like he said it would happen. No stone upon another. And all the stuff leading up to it that we just read happened precisely as he said it would. 
And for the people of God, that was a comfort. But because we can look back and see that Jesus not only rose from the grave as he promised, not only did the temple tumble as he, uh, as he predicted, as he prophesied, because of all of that, we can rely on the fact that he is coming back in glory and power. And that's going to be more the subject of the next two weeks. He will save from God's wrath all those who repent from sin and trust in him. So no matter the circumstances, no matter how bad everything gets, no matter the hardship, remember that God is faithful and trustworthy. If you place your faith in him, you will see that he will see you through. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.